Hello and welcome to Try Talking Sport, hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast, or simply have an interest in sport, you've come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation, and a little bit of entertainment. Well, hello, December. Nice to see you, I think. So, who has the Christmas tree up already? I decided on Sunday to put the tree up. I procrastinated for about five hours before deciding to finally put it up. And I can tell you it's put a bit of a pep in my step these past few days. There is a definite sense of fun and freedom in the air. Or maybe that's just me. Yes, I know we are still living with COVID and we are restricted in what we can do and who we can meet. But there is a definite sense of hope as we make our way through what will be undoubtedly a very different Christmas to what we have ever experienced before. Maybe it was the Late Late Toy Show on Friday night. Maybe it was putting up the Christmas tree. I really don't know. But the festive spirit is making its presence felt and even though it may only be a small spark, I am holding onto it tightly. Speaking of sparks, sparkles, festivities and all things magical and Christmassy, two things for you to consider. One is we are well underway with our free 12 Days of Christmas challenge. Why don't you join us if you haven't signed up? The deal is you take part in some form of physical activity for 12 hours over the period the 1st to the 25th of December. You track your activity on the Nuco platform and when you complete the challenge, you get entered into the draw for some nice sporty prizes. You can sign up now on www.trytalkingsport.com. If that's not floating your boat, we launched the Christmas Cracker promotion on Monday, a month long of social promotions with the chance to win a host of different prizes across the month. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram so you don't miss out on the chance to win. It's our way of spreading some sparkle and joy this Christmas in partnership with some totally sound people. If you are looking for a treat for yourself and here comes the Try Talking Sport bobble hat plug or a secret Santa gift for someone else, why not pick up a Try Talking Sport bobble hat? The pink ones are now available to purchase along with our blue, navy or grey versions. They are in limited supply, so get in quick before the last minute panic buying starts. Yeah, there will be last minute panic buying. You know there will be. So just get it over and done with now. You can purchase them on trytalkingsport.com. Blue was always my favourite, but to be honest, I really do like the pink ones now too. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed, shared and downloaded the podcast. We are well on the way to hitting 50,000 downloads by Christmas Day, but I still need your help to get there. So please tell your friends about the show and help spread some inspiration and motivation with the wider community. Plus, you will be giving me the perfect Christmas gift this year. Now, before I introduce this week's guest, a little update on my swimming and mermaiding. I can confirm that on Monday, the last day of November, I completed my first ever swimming streak. I managed to get into the sea every day in November, some days twice a day. Yoo-hoo! I was so disappointed in October that I missed that one day at the end of the month due to the yellow weather warning that I vowed to make it through November without a break. My infatuation, if that's what you can call it, with swimming started back in August with the Galway Bay Virtual Swim and I haven't looked back since. The water and air temperature is getting a little bit chilly, but the fun and adventures I've had just two kilometres from home these past few weeks has just been brilliant. I've also completed the first month of the Walrus Challenge to swim 1,000 metres in skins each month from November to March. November, I think, might have been relatively easy by comparison to what we may face in January and February, but I'm hooked now. I'm going to keep going for as long as I can. I never really considered myself a swimmer. I guess maybe I can call myself that now. If you are dipping your toes this winter in the sea, be sure to listen to the most recent episode of the podcast with the open water and ice swimmer Tiffany Quinn. And even if you're not going swimming, 
You should take a listen. She has a fascinating story to tell of her swimming adventures and some great advice for staying safe in the water, especially as we embrace some cold winter swimming. This week's guest, Nikki Bradley. An adaptive adventurer may prefer mountain climbing and abseiling to sea swimming, but she is an incredible athlete with a focus and positivity that knows no bounds. Nikki has embraced a life of adventure in recent years following a cancer diagnosis at the age of 16, which changed the direction of her life completely. She is the founder of fitness-based awareness Fighting Fit for Ewings, which involves participating in physical challenges such as an attempted Guinness World Record in Holland, climbing the route of a glacier in Iceland and completing the fan dance gruelling 24-kilometre trek in Wales, all whilst relying heavily on crutches. In July 2018, Nikki became the first crutch user to climb four Irish mountains on crutches in less than 32 hours. Her passion for life, resilience in the face of adversity and her ability to face a challenge head on is both inspiring and uplifting. Life dealt Nikki some difficult circumstances at a young age, but she has embraced those challenges, risen above them and now empowers others to do the same. As a motivational speaker and advocate for following a passion for sport, she has coupled this interest with her profession in her current role as the Ulster Development Officer with Triathlon Ireland. Enjoy the show. Nikki Bradley, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's great to see you. Where in the country are you today? Thanks for having me on. I'm in Milford in Donegal on this nice foggy day. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly foggy down in Galway. I think the last time we met was at the Outsider Magazine Awards in 2018. It was, it was. Seems like only yesterday. Two full years have gone. I know, yeah, it's nearly three years now, isn't it? God, where what are we just? It was January, the end of January 2018, and look at where we are now at the end of a year where nothing kind of happened for either of us this year. That's it. It's a year that you just you could not have predicted how the year went. Um, yeah, and it's uh, and you know what? There's as much as there was a lot of hardship throughout the year there was also a lot of opportunities for greatness um, and I think we all saw that with the Late Late Show this weekend and what Ireland is capable of absolutely incredible. It was amazing and for any of our listeners who are tuning in who don't know what the Late Late Show is it's like um, how would you describe it? <laughs> Check it out on the RTE player it is just the yeah. most wonderful magical show and this year it was just absolutely amazing it's generally focused on the toys but this year they focused on the kids and the entertainment and it was just it was just such it was like a big warm hug that we got on Friday night here in Ireland I think it really was it was incredible but anyway Nikki to come back to talk to you a little bit so um I would love to hear a little bit about your story and your background you um talk about yourself as an adaptive adventurer um why is that and where has that all come from Okay, so the reason that I refer to myself as an adaptive adventure is that I do all my adventures on crutches. Um, so I have been adventuring since 2013, um, ever since I was told that I would remain on crutches for the rest of my life. And the reason that I am now a crutch user started with a cancer diagnosis when I was just turning 17, all the way back in 2002, showing my age here. Um, it was a day that I'll never forget. Um, I was diagnosed with Ewing's sarcoma. And two words I'd never even heard of before. Um, certainly heard a lot about them since. Rare form, in a nutshell, it's a rare form of bone cancer that primarily affects children and teenagers. Um, and thankfully, because it's a bone cancer, it was localized. So there was no chance of it spreading. That was one of few bits of good news that I was given the day I was diagnosed. Um, but yeah, it, after that initial diagnosis, my entire life changed. Um, I had to have immediate chemotherapy 
Uh, so I was diagnosed in December and my chemotherapy started the following month. Uh, so I started 2003 with regular trips to St. Vincent's Hospital in Dublin from Donegal um, for chemotherapy, then traveled over to the UK to have the tumor, which was quite a significantly sized tumor removed from my pelvis and then came home, had more chemotherapy and then finished off with radiotherapy. So it was a year and a half of just probably what I would consider my first adventure, um, my first real change in everyday life. Um, and if I ever questioned my strength, it was certainly put to the test during that time. And I came out the other side, a completely different person. Obviously I was scarred physically um, and somewhat scarred mentally, but I was really surprised myself with what I was capable of doing with the right people around me. And that's kind of where all the fun stuff started. It all started with how I started thinking about what I'd been through and how I could put that new mental strength that I gained to good use. And had you been unwell, Nikki, or how did they suddenly come to a diagnosis at the age of, of 17 that you had this rare form of cancer? I wasn't unwell. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a cold. It wasn't any, the symptoms weren't like that at all. I had a, a lump on my pelvis um, that I pretty much ignored for the full summer of 2002. I've no idea why I ignored it. I often describe myself as a complete hypochondriac, especially when I was younger. Um, and I had a weird fascination with crutches. So I always say, be so careful what you wish for. Um, but if I had, you know, you know, if I, if I had the sniffles, I would be looking for a day off school thinking I had some sort of crazy flu. Um, but strangely, when I found that lump, I didn't tell anybody, didn't tell my family, friends, nobody. I kept it to myself. And I noticed and watched it grow to the point where when I went back to school that September, um, I went to school that you were allowed to wear school trousers as opposed to a skirt. The material of the trousers really almost highlighted the lump. So when I looked down, I could see it protruding. And yet I still didn't feel the need to tell anybody. Um, and eventually it all came to a head. One day I was messing around with a friend of mine on the stairs at school and she just gently, like playfully pushed me against the banister of the stairs. And whatever way I, I hit off the banister, it hit off the lump and it just knocked the wind out of me um, to the point where I just burst out crying. So the pain that it had caused by being disturbed made me know straight away in that moment that something wasn't right. So that evening I went home and told my mum, showed my mum. And from there, then it was straight to the doctor's x-rays. And then I found myself in that consultation with my consultant where he basically broke the news of Ewing's. So. For a 17-year-old girl to keep that to herself, that lump growing, but then to have your whole world pretty much shattered in a way because at 17 hearing something like that, you're actually probably thinking about going into your leaving cert maybe and what you might do in college and your whole life and boys and girls and whatever and fun <laughs> and your whole life ahead of you to suddenly be like sugar or shit even, I have this rare <laughs> form of cancer and my whole life is going to turn upside down right now. That's exactly it. And it was as dramatic as that. I remember in the lead up to it, I'd had x-rays, ultrasounds. I'd had appointments with with my consultant. Um, but this particular day, the day that I was diagnosed, I'd my appointment was at, let's say, two o'clock in the day and it was a school day. So I went and met my dad at the hospital. I'm still wearing my school uniform. That's the last time I ever wore that uniform. Walked in as a schoolgirl, walked out as a cancer patient. Um, and it was that dramatic in that I was told it was about two weeks before, two or three weeks before Christmas. So I was given that news and then told, unfortunately, because it's so close to Christmas, there's nothing we can do until the new year. 
So I was then myself and my dad had to go home and break the news to my family. So I had a younger brother and an older sister at home and my mum, obviously. Um, and, you know, we had to try and find our way through Christmas that year, knowing what lay ahead. Um, and it, yes, it was awful. But do you know what? We It wasn't as awful. Once I was in it, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Um, yeah, and certainly once the treatment started, the hardest part was waiting. Um, and anybody that's that's been through um, a cancer diagnosis will say the exact same. It's that period before your treatment starts where you're not entirely sure what's going to happen. That fear of the unknown is genuinely terrifying. So I was almost relieved to start the treatment and just have a new routine and kind of get on with it. And So you went through that first round of, of chemo and surgery and everything, but you ended up then later on, just a couple of years later, was it your hip was replaced twice? It was. So I, I, it wasn't a double hip replacement in that it was both hips. It was actually the, the same, same hip. hip yeah. Twice. Yeah. So I got a couple of years. So basically I got the all clear, had all my treatment. I thankfully got the all clear and I've been cancer free since, which is absolutely incredible. And I'm so thankful for that. But for me, the treatment for the disease was worse than the disease itself. So it was actually radiotherapy that caused the majority of the damage as much as chemotherapy damaged certain organs and whatever. Um, radiotherapy destroyed the bone in my right hip so another very dramatic day that I recall was in 2006 I was I swear obviously as I said I'd had to leave school very suddenly when I was diagnosed and I was keen to continue my education once I got the all clear so I went back to um, an adult education center to study for the leaving cert and I was sitting at the table at home studying for the mocks actually and I felt a twinge in my hip and it was nothing. It wasn't it, I wasn't crying with the pain, but it was enough to make me stand up and feel the need to stretch out the joint. Um, you know, if you were sitting for a long time and you just feel stiff, that's how it felt. And by that night, I was in hospital on morphine. And from that day to this, I haven't walked the same since. Long story short, when they removed the tumor, they had to cut through muscle and nerves. From the moment after my first operation, I had been left with nerve damage. Um, and when the hip started to disintegrate because of radiotherapy, it was, I think, bone fragments were actually leaning on those damaged nerves. That's the way I've pictured it all these years later. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what was happening and that's what was causing the intense pain. Um, so I spent three weeks not even able to get out of bed. I was I literally had to be helped to the bathroom. I I didn't sneeze for eight months during that time. Such a random thing to remember. But that involuntary kind of jerking motion of ha of sneezing would have sent a spasm of incredible pain up and down my body. So my body just stopped producing the need to sneeze. It was so weird. And I remember, you know, when I was in hospital, not allowing doctors would often come and maybe go to like touch the bed or do something. And I would be terrified of anybody even touching the duvet, never mind sitting on the bed, even family members, I would warn them as they were coming through the door to not not bang off the bed, not go anywhere near it, because the shockwaves that it would create would be, I would be literally screaming the house down with pain. So I ended up spending the entire summer of 2006 in St. Vincent's Hospital, I spent 10 full weeks in hospital. And eventually I was told that the pain was coming from, as I say, the, the bone disintegrating and leaning on damaged nerves. So I describe it as kind of like a live wire, like touching a live wire. So I was told that, look, there's they'd done everything they could to try and find a way around what ended up happening, which was a hip replacement. But it got to the point that, that the pain was too intense. I, I actually couldn't live with it. So they said, the only thing we can do is replace the hip. 
Um, and I, I was 21 at the time. So the thought of having a hip replacement before even my grandparents, they hadn't even had this, like I would have considered it an old person's operation. Um, and to be the first in my family to have it seemed weird. But when I woke up the next day, completely pain-free bar post-operative pain which to be honest didn't even register compared to the other pain it was I act I can't even describe the relief I felt like I remember waking up the next day and anybody that's had a hip replacement will know they they get you out of bed very quickly after you've had a hip replacement there's no oh yeah just lie there for a day or two and relax it's no up you get um so I expected this searing pain when I went to move and it just never arrived and I was up and out of the hospital within the week and I just genuinely felt like this is it now. Life is finally back on track. And yes, I'm on crutches for a while, but I'll get off them and it'll be fine. But unfortunately, that's not exactly what happened. There was another hip replacement waiting for me. Um, I ended up, the first hip replacement eventually got infected. I did get a few years out of it, but it eventually got infected. Just, just bad luck. Nothing to do with surgery or, you know, nothing to do with anything other than a bit of bad luck and um the hip had to be removed and replaced again I happened to be in Australia when that happened so it wasn't easy to have such serious surgery on the other side of the world but you know by this point I so used to my life being changed in an instant that it almost didn't bother me anymore and by that stage I'd had actually quite a few minor surgeries along with the big ones so surgery itself certainly didn't bother me so I had the hip removed while in Australia and replaced back in Ireland and sorry you had the hip removed in Australia and replaced in Ireland what does that mean so the actual prosthesis was removed in Australia and they put in what's called a spacer so it's just a temporary prosthetic just to, to have something in there so that allowed me then to fly home and I was due then once that healed enough to have another operation I was due then to have that taken out and the actual second prosthetic put in um, but unfortunately I was due to have this was in 2011 I was due to have the follow-up the second hip replacement in I think it was January of 2012 but in December a week before Christmas in 2011, I fell off a chair and broke my femur, snapped it completely in half and ended up spending Christmas Day back in St. Vincent's, my favorite place. Um, and that then meant I wasn't able to have my second hip replacement until the summer of the following year. So that put that back by a good few months. And as a result of that broken femur, I now have a metal plate that runs from my hip down to my knee and quite a long scar. So, yeah. <laughs> What do you like going through airports? Do you have to tell them oh, you've loads of metal nightmare. bits? <laughs> I just, I used to get so embarrassed by it because they, they have to take the crutches away from you and they hand you this like old rickety walking stick that looks like something from like a, I don't even know, a film made back in the day. I was used to be more embarrassed about using that than anything else. Um, but I would just, I used to carry a letter, but now I don't even bother doing that. I just explain like they, they know when they see me coming that I'm probably going to beep. And in fairness, I've never had any issues. They've always been amazing. Um, I can't even stand in the x-ray machine. I can't even stand with my legs wide enough apart because of I actually have an almost 11 centimeter leg length discrepancy as a result of everything. So standing evenly is impossible. So I can't even do that. So that's another thing I have to explain to them. So yeah, traveling is fun. So are you on crutches all of the time now, Nikki? Is there any time where you don't use crutches? I've been on them 
permanently since 2013. And um, before that, I, I had a like it was an on and off situation. I would have surgery and then get off them for a while and then I'd be back on them or I might be down to one or whatever. But I've been on at least one permanently since 2013. Now, when I'm in my home, I just hobble about. I have a custom made carbon fiber hip brace that I wear to protect the area just in case I slipped or something. Um, but you know yourself when you're like I have two animals that are quite um, they need my attention and I have lots of things going on a boyfriend that's in and out making a mess so I, I'm constantly cleaning my little cottage here so the crutches are an inconvenience at the best of times so there are times where I'll just park them up at the front door and just hobble but anything further than around my own home I need them because I just can't walk further than you know a couple of yards or whatever so and what's the pain level like at the moment then uh is it you know closer to, to two or three as opposed to searing pain at nine or ten or does it come in waves or, or how does that all um manifest itself in, in a daily basis do you know what funnily enough if you had have asked me that question before 2020 i would have said my my pain for me now, I like to think that I have quite a high pain threshold um, just to give you an idea of what I'm dealing with at the moment. So my consultants who are now based in Birmingham have said that they can't actually believe I still have the use of my hip. There's that little holding on to it that it's basically hanging on by a thread. So they can't believe that I use it at all. Never mind, use it for adventuring. Um, so there are days where the pain is quite high. But funnily enough, lockdown destroyed any progress I was making um, I would have trained in the gym quite regularly I was also attending Pilates which I was finding extremely beneficial for pain relief but when the first lockdown hit um, and we had no choice but to just you know exercise at home or whatever I was doing a lot of uh, road walking and I do a lot of kind of fast walking slash kind of hopping and fast hopping with the crutches and I think I just I possibly did myself no favors during that time so my pain skyrocketed um for a few months and then it kind of settled but in the last two weeks the nerve pain that I always have in my hip has now for whatever reason traveled up to the top of my back and into my shoulders and my neck so I've been dealing with back pain loss of feeling loss of grip in my hands um a lot of kind of new issues this year today and the last couple of days um I would say my pain is up around seven I'm back on painkillers, which really annoys me. I was so proud to be off all painkillers for such a long time, but I'm now back on quite strong painkillers, which is upsetting, but it can't be helped. So It's fascinating to listen to you describe what you've been through at such a young age. What age are you now, Nikki? I'm 34. So you're Not as young anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Not as young anymore. You're still very young. But to have gone through all of that and to still be smiling at the end of it and to be inspiring others. And that's really what I want to talk with you about today is about how you're inspiring others, how you set up Fighting Fit for Ewings and some of the challenges that you have taken on board. Not only have your own challenge every day in living your daily life, but you have been on some incredible adventures. Well, that's it. So the day I was told um, that I would be on crutches for the rest of my life was the day that I made the decision that I was gonna. I was just gonna make it work for me. So I think I was what I've been twenty eight, or I was, I was in my mid to late twenties when I was given that news. Um, you know, still so young to be told that this is it. Now you'll be on crutches for the rest of your life. And I was also told that my situation would actually deteriorate. I have actually been told since that I will face full right leg amputation eventually. 
that there isn't I can't have any more surgery other than the final surgery to remove the legs. So I felt I was in almost like limbo and I didn't want to just wait for that final operation because that's such a waste of life. And I realized that I had been doing a little bit of that in the lead up to that day where I was told that crutches would be a permanent feature. I hadn't really done much. You know, most of my 20s were behind me. I'd done a bit of travel, but I hadn't, even in terms of career, I hadn't really found my my moment or my spot or my niche. You know, I hadn't really just lived. I was merely existing as, and I always referred to myself as almost like a sick person. And I would say in my head, when I get better, I'll do this, that, and the other. And I just realized that, I was, that it was just an excuse. So I stopped making excuses, stop putting things on the long finger and decided to just take back a bit of control. Um, and even just as an experiment, see what I could do as a crutch user to, to alleviate a bit of pain and to strengthen the rest of my body because I'd almost forgotten about the rest of my body. You know, my hip and my right leg had held center stage for so long that the rest of my body was so neglected and feeling left out. But there's nothing wrong with it. It's all perfectly usable. So that's where it all started. We set up Fighting Fit for Ewings and we based it around physical challenges. I had a meeting with a physiotherapist and a personal trainer. Between the three of us, we said that we would start off with a three-month training plan and see what we could do in those three months in terms of strengthening the rest of my body and see if it would reduce a bit of the pain. And if it did, we would then see where we could go. By the end of those three months, that's what I meant about the painkillers. I was off all painkillers. I actually couldn't believe it. That I didn't, I just didn't need them. Now I'm, I do want to point out that I wasn't pain free. However, I I'd had a big shift in terms of my mindset through exercise, and that was the big that was a that was a game changer. To see what I was capable of doing, despite the fact that I was still in pain, was incredible. I was so intrigued and so genuinely curious to see what the body can do. At the end of the three months, we we're like, right, let's climb a mountain and just see what happens. So we picked. Being in Donegal, we picked Muckish Mountain. Unfortunately, by the end of the three months, it was heading into the winter months. It was October and we couldn't have picked a worse day to climb anything. Climb the stairs, never mind Muckish Mountain. Um, the wind was ridiculous. There was driving rain, fog so thick that we needed to use whistles to actually see where, you know, find each other. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face and we could have cancelled it. But bear in mind, this was my first challenge. There had been a big build up both me mentally and the team that was going with me. So I didn't want to cancel. And I had professionals with me, people that are so used to being on the mountains. So we decided to go ahead. A climb that should have taken maybe at most two hours took over six. It was nearly dark by the time we came back off the mountain. I was beyond exhausted. My shoulders especially because I just wasn't used to being on my crutches for that amount of time and to be traveling uphill. Um, my shoulders and my hands were all blistered. My feet were a bit but it was absolutely incredible. I, I went home that evening, just, I remember taking out a pen and paper and just making a list of what I wanted to do next. I couldn't sleep that night. I woke up the next day in bits, but absolutely delighted with myself. And that was it. I was hooked. You know, anybody that takes part in any type of sport knows that feeling and it's what brings you back. And that's pretty much how the adventuring began. And had you been sporty as a kid before all of this happened? Absolutely not. I was the laziest teenager. Oh, my God. I remember just like the most exercise I probably would have got was getting off the couch and getting to the fridge and just about back to the couch before I would be out of breath. I was just 
No, I had no interest. I, I loved gymnastics when I was very young, but once I turned into a teenager, that was it. I just was a typical lazy teenager. Um, so no, actually, strangely enough, getting sick was the making of me in terms of physical activity. I don't think I would have found it had it not been for that. Um, so, yeah. We hear an awful lot of uh, use of the word pivot in 2020 with businesses because of COVID-19. But actually getting that cancer diagnosis at 17 was a, probably the one most pivotal moment in your life that has led to your success to date in sport and beyond, really. It, so that is just such a, a true statement. Um, I often say that I actually feel lucky that I had this really significant moment and I also feel really lucky that I had it young you know so many people go through life without this big now because of COVID I think we can all say we've had this pivotal moment but before that there would have been so many people that find it hard to change habits and change you know they have this idea of what they want to do and how they want to improve themselves but until you have that big life-changing moment it can be quite hard to actually say right now I'm going to do it this is my second chance I was really given that you know it made it a lot easier to change a lot of things for myself so I, I consider myself lucky in that respect because it was a no-brainer once I saw what exercise was doing in terms of pain relief I knew there was no going back you know even the types of exercises we were doing in the gym this is around the time CrossFit was getting popular and you know women lifting weights was becoming more normal thankfully um, strength was popular as opposed to just you know losing weight which unfortunately we all felt the need to do at some point it was now about actually I want muscles I want muscle definition and I know I remember one of the first times spotting my the muscles popping in my arms and I was like yeah this looks good I'm, I I want this <laughs> but there's a lot to be said as well about body confidence as well um with regards to that going to the gym and seeing the muscles pop and and especially for somebody who has a disability now it must be even more important that you feel confident within your body it is and it's you know I remember times going into the gym especially when I was younger first of all I didn't really know what to do in the gym so like my early kind of dealings with gyms were always a nightmare because I would be terrified to go down to the weights because that's usually where the men were and I would be also conscious that even before I was on crutches permanently before I was on the, on them I would have limped and I was very self-conscious about that so you know there would have been times where I would kind of build myself up and say right today I'm going to do this that and the other in the gym and then I'd walk in and it would be maybe busier than I expected or there'd be you know more guys or like there'd be a good looking fellow over there in the corner and I would just be mortified instantly and there were days where I'd literally turn on my heel and leave, which obviously wasn't good for my mental health. Thankfully, just I think just with age, you stop getting embarrassed as easily. My teenage years were just one big whirlpool of embarrassment. But as I as I got a bit older and do you know what? The more my disability became obvious, the less I cared about it. Um, I remember after my first hip replacement, I had the smallest limp. And I mean, so small that people couldn't actually see it. I could feel it when I walked, but people couldn't actually see me walk any different to anybody else. And I was almost crippled with embarrassment by this difference that I felt I had. I would physically go red if I spotted people on the street that were walking towards me because all I would think in my head is they can see this limp. And strangely enough, now I have, as I said, nearly 11 centimeters of a leg length discrepancy, 
where if I tried to walk now without my crutches, I would literally be like up and down. It would be so strange looking, but I actually don't care. I really don't. And when I'm in the gym, I happily walk the length of the gym with my crutch. And, you know, it's very obvious that I have a leg, leg length discrepancy. Everybody knows it. And I, I'm totally fine with it. I've just accepted it now, thankfully. So it's made it easier. But you're also somebody who has achieved so much. You're an athlete. You belong as an athlete as well. Do you know what I mean? Like there's there's something around the idea of when we belong to something, we don't really care anymore. Not that we don't care, but it makes things an awful lot easier. So you're just part and parcel now of that gym, regardless of, of who you are or what you are or whatever. You're just probably Nikki. She comes in and she spots and she lifts heavy weights and does whatever you know it just normalizes it all yeah. for other people because I think it's other people get more uncomfortable than the person themselves maybe I'm wrong oh no you're a hundred percent right with that it is other people and like other people wanting to help so in the early days I would have always had especially guys but girls as well I would always have had you know when it came to lifting weights um like putting them back up on the rack or whatever they wanted to help because I would obviously I would obviously have to hold it with one hand and then use my other hand to walk. So I probably did look quite awkward, but I am quite stubborn and I didn't like the idea of having to ask for help if I didn't need it. Obviously, if I needed it, I had no problem. But if it was just a case of it might be a little bit easier if they carry it for me, I didn't want to fall into that trap because before you know it, you're not even lifting your own coffee cup. You have people doing everything for you. And I knew that I didn't need that. So but I did tend to go to the other end of that, where I remember going into a shop not that long ago. It was about a year and a half, two years ago. And I asked for a bag of coal. Now, it was quite a big bag. And the guy said, um, oh, well, you won't be carrying that yourself, obviously. And I remember just being so annoyed that he assumed that, I, A, probably because I'm a woman, but also because I was on a crutch that I wouldn't be able to carry it. So I went home and he put it into the boot, but I obviously he couldn't take it out of the boot when I got home. So it took about 15 minutes to get the bag of coal out of the boot. Probably that's where my back problem started, but I got it out. I took a picture of it. I put it up on my Ewing's page and I tagged him in it. And I just said, well, I think you might be wrong there. And I remember the next time he commented underneath it. And the next time when I went into the shop, he was practically giving me a round of applause. But that was just complete stubbornness. There was no need for it but I just felt the need to prove him wrong. Um, and do you know what? Sometimes that frame of mind can actually really help you because on a normal day, I wouldn't, I just would assume myself I couldn't lift something like that, but actually I could, you know, it just took a while. Oh, I'd have totally taken the help and probably said, sure, come on home with me as well and you can put it into the coal bunker out the back. <laughs> Swear to God, if my neighbours had seen me, like it took honestly about 15 minutes. But it was worth it. I'm still proud of that moment. Well, you see, it's all the little wins as well. It's not just about the big challenges because it is about the little wins in between. So you did Muckish as your very first challenge. So then you also have completed a phenomenal amount of other challenges. And I know there's a couple of highlights for you that you wanted to talk about today. So maybe take us through where you went after that first big climb in Donegal. Okay, so obviously we started with Muckish. We started with many challenges within the county. Um, and like anything that's working well, you do get to a point where you want to kind of push push the boat out and up the ante a little. Um, I was very aware of not going down the scale. So I didn't want to start with, obviously starting with a mountain only meant that we had to go higher after that. Um, but I didn't want to start with a mountain and then my next challenge be like, you know, a little trail walk or something. I wanted to keep going up. Um, so obviously we, we had to leave the county eventually. So I got to do some, as you say, like, amazing 
different challenges. Within the county, I was able to abseil off Fanet Lighthouse, which was such an unusual challenge. Um, that took in a lot of fears like heights and overlooking the sea, high winds. There was so much in that challenge. That's where my, my love of abseiling started. Um, I did that with Ian Miller. Ian Miller is an incredible um, rock climber and mountaineer. He's kind of become my mentor. He's never become official, but he, I'm sure he knows at this stage he's been, kind of become my mentor. He himself has done some incredible things and he allowed me to to start off the big and the, the really incredible rope-based challenges. So we've done some sea stacks, um, ab, lots of abseiling. I did my first challenge outside of Ireland in 2016, I think it was. In 2015, actually, we travelled to Iceland. So that was when I scaled a route of the Solheimiokal Glacier. That was an incredible challenge. The amount of preparation needed even for that challenge. You know, I wasn't able to obviously practice scaling a glacier in Ireland. Um, we don't even have any decent snow here, never mind enough ice to actually walk on. Um, but that was absolutely amazing. Like that was very that was very much my first time learning on the spot and having to deal with situations as they arose. Um, and actually during that walk or hike or whatever you would call it, we actually found a huge basically a huge hole in the ground. It was a 42 foot ice cave. We turned a corner and it was just there. Like to say, it was like a huge pothole. Um, and because we had the guides that we had booked um, had rope access skills, it allowed us to actually abseil into that ice cave. So that wasn't planned. That wasn't part of the adventure at all. But we just thought, you know, this is a once in a lifetime thing that's just happened out of the blue. Now, bearing in mind that happened when I hadn't been able to abseil in the traditional manner at that point, because if you've ever done abseiling, you'll know that you have to put equal pressure. You basically walk yourself down whatever it is you're walking down. And that involves putting equal pressure through both legs. It caused too much pain to do. So when even when I did the Fanned Lighthouse abseil, it was more of a lean back and then let go which, yes, was terrifying, but once you were on the rope, then Ian Miller then took over, and I, I was able to almost use one foot to kind of hop my way down, whereas with the ice cave, it involved using both because it was obviously a slippery surface, so I had to make sure that I was safe. So I very nearly didn't do it because I was terrified, but I thought, you know what, I'm never going to be in this exact spot again. Just do it. Like, if even if you slip, it'll be okay. You'll be a bit sore, but, you know, you're not going to die. It'll be fine. So I just kept saying that to myself over and over. And I was the only one. We only had rope long enough for me to get to the bottom. So we had a few people kind of at various stages, but I was the only one that went to the bottom. I had no camera with me. I had no phone. I was the only one that got to see what was at the bottom. And oh, my God, it was unreal. The ice in Iceland is as blue as you see in the pictures. It's not doctored. That's not Photoshop. That's real. It's absolutely incredible. And that's all this ice cave was made of, was that lovely soft blue. You could see the air bubbles within and, oh, my God, it was just incredible. And to think that if, you know, if I could have so easily walked away from that and just said, no, it's, it's too scary. And I never would have known what I would have missed. So it wouldn't have been that terrible. But now knowing what I saw, I'm so glad I did it. And that was kind of after that particular challenge, I made a point of keeping that in my head, that if you say no to something you'll never know what you're going to miss. And you just don't know what it could do to change your life. So I remember watching that film, Yes Man, with Jim Carrey. And as much as it was hilarious, the message in that really resonated with me. Say yes now and figure it all out later. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. Now, it's got me into some unusual situations. 
Um, some of which probably didn't really require saying yes, but it's been absolutely incredible to say yes to unusual challenges like attempting a Guinness World Record in Holland. That wasn't meant to happen. I was meant to, I, I did apply to Guinness to um, do a, fa- a 5K on crutches, an attempt to become the fastest woman in the world to do a 5K. Uh, but that should have happened in Ireland. It was just a complete coincidence that I found an adapted adventure or adapted athlete called Michael Robert Brands, who had actually lost his full leg to cancer um, a couple of years, well, a good few years ago. Um, I happened to be following him on Instagram because I found him very inspiring and loved what he was doing um, in the um, athlete's world and the adventuring world. And one day he just put up a post that had a simple logo and it was the Guinness World Record logo. And underneath he had a a little post saying that his application for the fastest 5k in the male category attempt had been um, accepted by Guinness so he was going to do this world record and I just thought what are the chances that the one person that I have chosen to follow who is in somewhat the same boat as me has applied to Guinness to do the exact same world record attempt as I have so I, I couldn't not do something about that when it was that level of a coincidence so I dropped him a message and just said, just explained who I was and what I was hoping to do. And because he's Dutch, he's very direct. And he said, would you like to attempt these world record attempts together? My initial thought was, no, you weirdo. We don't even know each other. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was like, well, because genuinely my first my first screaming thought was no. And it flooded with thoughts of how would I get there? I'd have to travel by myself. Most likely I'd have to stay with strangers there might be a language barrier. It would be awkward. Like I, th- the first thing was, it will be awkward. As soon as I meet him, it'll be so awkward. I won't know anybody and blah, blah, blah. And then once I allowed myself to have all those negative thoughts, I pushed them aside and just just wrote down a few things of, well, what if? What if I say yes? What if I just give it a go? Like what is actually the worst that can happen? I could go over, find myself in a bit of an awkward situation and not succeed with the world record attempt but am I actually losing out on anything by doing this and I I couldn't I I, once I started thinking like that I couldn't come up with any more excuses so it just became a big book my ticket and he said he would take care of everything else which he did it was one of the best things I've ever done it was absolutely amazing now there's a story behind the actual world record attempt um I missed out by a single second and yeah, I'm still bitter about that, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> but you know what? I wouldn't change it. Meeting him, meeting his family, going over and attempting our world records attempts together. And just the way that all worked out was absolutely insane to the and point where we've remained friends. Sorry, go on. Did he get his record? He did, which made it all the more painful for me. <laughs> oh, no. I actually, so what, what makes this so annoying is that I smashed the time I was told to beat. Um, so Guinness on their website, on the official website, the time back then, the time to beat uh, was 49 minutes, 53 seconds, which obviously, granted, is a very long time to do a 5K. But bear in mind, it was a one legged race. I had to actually strap my bad leg to my good leg and use my crutches to go around the track, which is where we were doing the record attempt. So the time I was told to beat was 49 minutes, 53 seconds. And I did it in 44 minutes and 21 seconds. So I knew on the last lap that I'd smashed it. So I slowed down just to make sure that my foot that was attached to the other leg didn't touch the ground because that was automatic disqualification. So I just I I knew it was in the bag. I slowed down a little bit. um, And it turns out that the time that Guinness had put on the website was actually incorrect. 
um, somebody in America had since done the record attempt. They just hadn't updated the new time, the new record holder's time. She'd done it in 44 minutes, 20. So I literally lost out by a second and I didn't know. And because I slowed down on that last lap, if I had just not even gone faster, if I had kept the same pace, even though she had become a new record holder and they hadn't updated it, she actually would have been wiped out because I would have done it a lot faster. But because of those incorrect times, I lost out. So that was very annoying, but I wouldn't change it for anything because the only thing that I would change by doing it again is that I would actually have the record. But meeting Michael, meeting his family, seeing how someone like Michael, he's six foot three or six foot four, he's lost his leg from the hip. So he literally only has, he doesn't even have a stump. He has literally one leg. And seeing how he just smashes his way through life as an amputee and just as as a legend changed everything for me. Like I had so many fears about becoming an amputee. I used to worry about things like daft things, like how would I sit down? You know, if I lost my leg from the hip, would I, you know, would I be missing a huge part of me that would allow me to actually sit down? Would I just keel over if I tried to sit on a stool? Like I used to have these random thoughts and they were genuinely terrifying. You know, I'd worry about, say, what other people would think seeing, you know, a young woman walking along with one leg when you're in situations, say in a lift or in the queue for the bank where you can't get away and where people have nothing else to look at but something different, which is, you know, an amputee. I used to worry so much about all of that, but Michael changed all of that for me. Seeing how he got about and how he prepared the dinner he would have a little kind of stool on on wheels that he would just whiz about the kitchen and he was able to make a full meal for his wife and his child and he was just so normal which obviously he was but I just needed to see it with my own eyes to know that when I face that operation I too will be completely normal I'll just do things slightly differently and I I can't express how powerful that was to to experience that And, and it's something that many of us will never experience Like we'll never really understand the terrifying thoughts that you would have had with regards to becoming an amputee. It's uh, it's it's actually mind blowing. And then there are so many people I always have to remind myself that like as much as I can, I know what you're saying in that it's, you know, it's a difficult position that I'm in all the time. You know, I'm still I still have both my legs, but I'm still in the position where I've been told that I can't have any more surgery, that I will eventually face it. Nobody knows when. So I'm still in this limbo situation. But I'm also very conscious that there's so many people out there that aren't even given that time to get used to it. Say a car crash or something like that or a serious illness where they're given very little time to get used to the fact that they'll wake up the next day with one leg or one arm or something like that. And their life will change overnight, but they won't have any time to get used to it. Whereas I now am ready almost, which sounds strange, as much as I would still hate for it to happen. But if it happened tomorrow... I already know exactly what I would do. I already know what challenges I would try. I really want to try sit skiing, but I can't do it at the moment with two legs. So once I only have one, it'll actually make it easier. You're hilarious. You're already wishing away that leg. (laughs) I know. It's crazy. Like I was actually told by a Paralympian that life would be easier. More doors would open is his exact words. If I just got rid of the leg, I thought he was joking. He actually was. But you know what? As much as when you take away the fear It is just a limb. As I mentioned, the rest of me is completely fine. And I am always conscious, as I said, that there's always somebody worse off. There's always somebody that's facing far worse with less time to prepare. And when I'm having a down day and I'm feeling sorry for myself, especially this year, because obviously, you know, it's been tough for everybody. Um, 
And I know before we started recording, we were talking even about work, you know, as a speaker. My last talk was at the end of March. No, my last my last in-person talk, sorry. But for months afterwards, there was just nothing. And I found myself going from having all these goals. I was meant to climb Kilimanjaro in August, meant to travel to Africa to climb, do my biggest challenge to date by a country mile. That was all put off. You know, there were so many things that were cancelled this year that set me back that and you know even not being able to train my pain now is through the roof it's so easy for me to just sit and moan but that's one of the things that I'll always remind myself is that there's always people even people that don't have anything wrong health-wise there are people out there that this Christmas it's going to be really really tough and I'm lucky that I'm sitting here in my lovely home that everything is still okay and that's one thing that I always have to remind myself that just no matter what First of all, no matter how bad you think it is now, it can always get worse. This year has shown us that. And that there's, a, there's a big thing around acceptance as well, I think, and gratitude for this year. You can only deal with the things that are in your control. COVID is not in our control, but our own bubbles, our own environments, that's what we can control. And accepting that exactly. there won't be a million Christmas parties, that there mightn't be 40 people in your house at Christmas, or there mightn't be everybody that you want around you at the Christmas table. It's hard to accept it, but once we accept it, it makes it a little bit easier to manage, I think. Um, yeah. And being grateful for what we have. Like you, I haven't worked since the since the 8th of March was my last live show. And, you know, people are often getting in touch about, say, the, the biking I'm doing at the moment on Zwift or the daily dips. And my answer to them is they're keeping me sane. They're giving me a routine. I've accepted I won't really get to work potentially until February or March at the earliest of next year. So you have to adapt. You have to accept that this is it now. Um, I'm jokingly telling people when I do get back to work, I'll really struggle because I won't be able to swim every day. I won't be able to jump on my bike willy nilly and, and have the crack. But, That's it. but you kind of, I think you look at the opportunities that you're given, you try and find the silver linings and you accept what's happened push the boundaries with your challenges yeah. and what you're doing and certainly getting into the sea every day is, is challenging me every day um but that's a huge part of it I think 100% like and what you're you know as much as if you had have known this was going to happen like if you had been told this time last year that come March you won't work again for the rest of the year you imagine knowing that in advance it would be terrifying um so in some ways you know people often talk about the fear of the unknown but sometimes you're better off not knowing um, you've learned to adapt. You're now going to miss that freedom of being able to get into the water as much as you can. We all have learned things about ourselves this year that because we're still in it, it's not as easy to see. But I guarantee once we're hopefully, fingers crossed, once we come out the other side of COVID and the new normal and life goes back to somewhat normality, we will be able to then look back and see how far we've come and see what we've learned um, and see even what skills like this year. I didn't realize how much I love watercoloring. Now I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Like every weekend I have my paints out and I'm just doodling away. Whereas I would have felt almost pressure. And that's something even to, in terms of Christmas, that's something that I want to kind of bring up is that as much as we're not going to have the Christmas parties and we're not going to have the amount of people around, we're also not going to have the pressure that comes with Christmas. That pressure can be like just, just even from friends. Oh, will you not come out tonight? Ah, oh, you dry shite. Would you not come out? <laughs> like, that fear of missing out is very real for some people. And you can find yourself on your third night out with the horrors from too much alcohol, feeling extremely lethargic. And, you know, all of that can have a really negative 
impact on your mindset. So that's why come January, everybody's racing to the gyms, going on these mad diets, whereas maybe this year we won't have that. We'll just continue on where we left off in December. And there's definitely, as I said, with the watercolor, I didn't realize that I, you know, I needed to do it. But now that I can't go off and do my adventuring, especially during the second lockdown, I'm restricted, as is everyone. I've been allowed to not feel that pressure to be out every weekend. You know, I can sit with the fire on and do some watercoloring and not feel lazy because that type of activity, even though I was still being creative in a different way, because I was sitting down and not physically getting up and doing stuff, I actually would have felt guilty. So which is ridiculous. Like you don't always have to be on the go to be achieving something. We're definitely finding out who we are now as people moving forward you know who who are new what what's emerging what new skills we can now take into 2021 so it's not all bad no it's not and there definitely has been some some silver linings before i ask you about what some of the plans might be for the future i'd like to ask what has been the highlight so far with your challenges i know you um did the fan dance and you've also done the four highest peaks um in ireland as well which were both huge accomplishments but what has been the highlight for you across the board I'll mention the four peaks now in a second, but because that was the most physically demanding um, challenge I've ever done. But the fan dance was probably the most, probably the most humbling experience I've ever had. Um, So just to explain briefly what the fan dance is, it's a 24 kilometre trek through the Brecon Beacons in Wales. And it's organised by um, the Special Forces, um, the British Special Forces. Fan dance started as part of special forces training so at the end of their week of their selection week where they would have been put through their paces in every respect they would have been basically put through hell for a full week at the end of that they would have done the equivalent of the fan dance which is 24 kilometers up and down the penny fan twice um, through really harsh conditions winter conditions like snow as far as your knees whilst carrying a fully loaded backpack so for men and women there's a different weight but you don't you have to have um, you know, the original soldiers would have had what they would need if they needed to stay overnight on a mountain. But the actual fan dance that came from that, which is a, an adventure event, has followed as closely as possible the rules that would have been put in place by the soldiers and by, by the special forces um, in that even though it's a race and even though it's an event, you still have to, what you have in your backpack has to be useful items to the point where they actually check what's in it. You can't just fill it with sand for convenience your bag is also weighed so you can't pretend it's heavy by like struggling as you're walking up to the start line and putting on your best face of torture you actually have to have it weighed it's all legitimate the people that take part in this particular event are incredible the people that I met along the way that day were you know there was they were ex-military they had lost people at war they were doing this particular event as a fundraiser for people that had lost limbs they, they just the stories were never ending and everyone was more inspiring than the last that's the first time that i've really had that experience where first of all because it's a march um there's there's two different types you can do it as like a trail runner so yeah your your pace is going to be a lot faster but the majority of people do it as a march so you you are walking quite slowly so you actually have time to speak to people, which is lovely. It was just, it was absolutely incredible. It was so, even getting to Wales, getting to um, the Brecon Beacons was a nightmare in some ways. We were traveling in a van. We had a mattress in the back where we were going to sleep if worse came to worse. Um, we got the ferry over from Ireland. And when we got as far as Wales, the because we decided to do, there's a winter edition and a summer edition. And I knew that I would only do it once. 
So I wanted to do the tougher one. So we went for the winter edition um, and the snow started about an hour and a half away from our destination. And every 10 minutes, the snow was getting heavier, but we were traveling uphill the whole time. So we were dealing with, because we were in such a heavy van, we were dealing with loss of grip on the on the wheels. We were worried we wouldn't even get there. So we'd had an adventure before we even got to our accommodation. Um, and then when we got there, it was it was quite scary. Actually, it was myself and my boyfriend that did it. And we didn't know anybody. Um, the accommodation was very basic. You were sharing a room with complete strangers, with men, women, didn't matter. I happened to be in a, a room with all men of varying ages so you'd men farting and snoring all night and I'm sitting there in the corner terrified like that oh my god it was that in itself was such a surreal experience you're getting dressed in the morning in front of everybody so everything about it was I think as closely linked to how you would experience life in the military didn't matter whether you're a man or woman what your background was you're all thrown into it together you also had to be at the start line at a certain time and it was very strict. You were put through the rules of what your clothing had to, like you were told in advance what you had to wear for safety, like in terms of layers and all that. There were people that turned up that had obviously ignored the emails that came in beforehand and just turned up in running gear. They were turned away. Didn't matter where they traveled from or how long it had taken or how much it had cost them to get there. They were turned away. They didn't listen to the rules and that was it. There was no, there was no special allowances made for anybody. And I just love that. It was the first time I'd experienced that kind of level of strictness with a challenge. When we set off, I was told, like, I'd, I'd obviously got in touch with them and asked, could I do it? Because as a crutch user, there was a quite a st- strong possibility that they would have said no. But I sent them some of the challenges I'd done before and some of the write-ups and tried to kind of big myself up enough that they would say yes. Uh, so they did. Um, but they did warn me that because of, you know, because of it being winter, the daylight hours are a lot less. So I was given a time frame to get to the halfway point and it, they said to me if I didn't make it that I would be taken off and I'd have no choice in the matter. So that was at the back of my mind all day long. Um, now, as far as I was concerned, I made the halfway point in time. But because the weather conditions were so severe, so the snow had been quite severe most of the day, you know, it was just overcast all day. So it did feel darker earlier. So they had said that I wouldn't be allowed to finish it, that I'd have to come back the next day and do the second half. And I was just crushed. I was absolutely crushed. I didn't want to do the second half with a new set of people that were doing the race for the first time. I wanted to finish with the people that I'd got to know. So I basically got down on my hands and knees and begged. And I just said, please, like, I guarantee I will get down this mountain before it gets dark. Like, I give you my word. And they spoke to their medical officer who in the army, it's the medical officer that makes the final call. It, it wasn't the organizers. So he said he'd seen me at the top of the penny fan, that I was in good condition. I was flying along and he gave the go ahead for me to finish. So that relief was unreal. But I didn't even get time to sit at the halfway point and have a rest or have a drink of water. It was literally right, go. You don't have time to do anything. Keep going. So that level of pressure was the motivation I needed and I got down to the bottom it took over eight hours in total got down to the bottom before it got dark and at the end of all of that what you're given is basically a patch like a, a piece of material so when you do a marathon you're given a medal and it's you know a, a shiny piece of kit that you could show off um, and when I when I first heard about this patch I thought like that's a bit of a it's a bit underwhelming after all the work you've put in. But when I heard the story behind it, I just thought that's just another element to this event that is just amazing. The idea behind it is that with a medal, as much as you're proud of it on the day, can people that do regular marathons 
you know, do they know where their medals are right now when they think about them or are they just in a drawer getting dusty? The idea about the patch is that you actually sew it on to your backpack or your coat or whatever you use when you go on adventures. And every time you look at that, you'll be reminded of what you achieved and it'll encourage you to then do more. And I just thought that is just, it's so clever. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. The amount of people that I saw that had, because there's all different events within the fan dance, you can do the trident, which is the fan dance three times throughout the night. The people that do that are just insane but absolutely amazing but you see these people with patches all over their clothes and it's like their badge of honor it's absolutely unreal it sounds it sounds incredible it sounds incredible it uh, it really is i'd love to do as much as i said i wouldn't do a challenge more than once of that level i'd actually that's one every time i talk about it i talk myself into wanting to do it again (laughs) and then of course you became the first female to complete the four irish peaks and you did it in what 32 hours so we did um, Karen Tuchel, Croke Patrick, Sleeve Donard in County Down, and then finished with Aragal in Donegal. So as far as I know, I think I might be the first person to do it on crutches. Um, I haven't, I've looked it up. I haven't seen anybody else that has done it before. We were hoping to do it 24 hours, but just simply in terms of getting from A to B, that in itself took quite a long time. So it, it ended up taking 32. The amount of stories from that 32 hour period I will if I didn't do anything again for the rest of my life I could be coming up with stories from that one event there was so much like even when, in terms of organizing it it was such a big it was a fundraiser for starters so there's always that pressure of raising a bit of money for your chosen charities um but I also wanted to kind of have it as a bit of a slick event so initially we're like right we'll get a helicopter to go from A to B it'll be really James Bond it'll be cool um but it'll also be less time in terms of tra- travel time because that's where I usually I seize up so when I'm actually moving, I'm fine. But once I sit back into the car, everything just goes into lockdown. And it just, even my my hands, the grip around the crutches for so long can become a problem opening my hands out again. Um, so the less time between, you know, mountain A and mountain B, the better. So we were like, right, if we got a helicopter, that would be hardly any time. It'd be amazing. And then I priced helicopters. So we rented a van. <laughs> <laughs> I was brought down to earth with a, with a bump. <laughs> And uh, a beanbag in the back of a van. And that's how we got from mountain A to mountain B. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, not as not as slick as I thought. But you know what? It did the job. And that's once we actually got going. I even had, you know yourself, when you're going away, say on holidays, you overpack. I did the same with the Four Peaks. I had a full backpack of a change of clothes, like 23 pairs of socks, like different trousers, um, different three different coats. I didn't even change. I think I changed my socks once. Didn't even take my shorts off. I had the same pair of shorts for all four times. Got soaked about 73 times. Couldn't be bothered changing. I was like, these are comfortable. They're not hurting my hip. They'll do. But it, do you know what? It even added to it to, to be fully minging by the time you got to the fourth mountain just made it all the more authentic. Um, <laughs> but it was it was absolutely unreal. And the support we received. So that that particular story did, you know, it went out across national media. So we actually ended up meeting people at various stages of all four climbs that had heard about the story. And I got to listen to their stories. I got to meet my first adult survivor of Ewing's. Um, I had no idea that he was going to be there, but uh, we pulled into the car park Pro Patrick in Mayo and I was about to start the climb and I noticed an amputee on crutches and he, we kind of made, made eye contact and I just knew that he was there to speak to me. Um, so I went over and he shared his story. He said he'd heard about what I was doing and that he'd lost his leg to Ewing's a number of years ago, like quite a long time ago. And he'd been an amputee obviously since. And he'd always been terrified of 
say climbing or doing things in case he would fall um but that was his first time going as far as he did so he actually walked up the first set i'm not sure if you're familiar with Crow patrick but there's a big set of steps and there's quite a bit of rocky terrain before you get to it so he did a bit of the small bit of the hike with me and for him that was the first time he'd done it so he was so proud and i was so so unbelievably overwhelmed that he had come out to say hello and share his story he had no idea what time i was going to arrive at at that that particular mountain so him and his wife had just waited for me to arrive and I think that was the part that I kept remembering was that he just waited like he didn't know how long it was going to take we didn't know I didn't know he was there so I didn't know to hurry up do you know what I mean I just thought like that that really meant so much to me and that got me up that mountain because easily Crook Patrick's the hardest of the four in my opinion (laughs) the amount of people that were doing it barefoot and I'm there moaning as I went along with comfortable hiking boots on and that's what I mean about like you think you have a tough and you see somebody that's doing it like that and you're just like wow incredible. So when we look to 2021 um, what are the plans? Well the way I look at it is I you know we don't know what 2021 is going to hold or what's going to happen but I think 2020 was the year where we got used to the new normal and 2021 is the year that we embrace it so regardless of what happens next year I'm gonna set some goals and damn it I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that I achieve them this time and um, if we're allowed travel I will be doing Kilimanjaro that's a big if I really really hope that does go ahead I'm delighted that it wasn't just cancelled outright that it was just postponed but that is something now that I've been training for it's a huge deal for me to be able to do that that will be by far the, the most difficult thing I've ever done outside of adventuring just in life that'll be six days of continuously well sleeping at night but sleeping in tents and hiking constantly for six days. So that will be just life-changing experience. So I hope that goes ahead. But within Ireland, I really want to get back down and do Karen Tuchel again. Um, I'd actually love to do it early in the new year and maybe do it when there's a bit of snow. Definitely want to get back up onto the mountains as regularly as possible because it's kind of as cheesy as it sounds. It's where my heart is. Some of my friends that aren't really into hiking, they've done a few with me, but I could see they're bored off out of their tree. They don't get it. Whereas I, there's something about particularly special about mountains, the view at the top, but the sense of achievement when you get to the bottom. So I'm looking forward to a lot of that. Um, and for the most part, just see what happens. I have lots of things in the pipeline that I, I'm afraid to say in case they don't happen. But you know what? I'm just going to continue with Jim Carrey's yes man approach and whatever comes my way, we'll say yes now and figure it out later. Well, I love that. And I love the fact that half the time we're winging it. Hashtag winging it is my favourite, even though I'm a total nerd. And I'm so overprepared for the amount of stuff that I do 90% of the time. But then that last 10%, I'm just like, definitely, I'm going to do that. Yeah, hashtag, I'll wing it. We'll definitely (laughs) wing it. Um, There's something more exciting about winging it as well, because you don't actually know if you can achieve it. And it's all the more surprising if and when you do. Well, it's like pushing yourself outside your comfort zone every every time because you just don't know what's going to happen. We have mentioned COVID and, and the global pandemic and there's lots of people who are going to be going through their own obstacles through life, through Christmas, through the next 24, 36 months, maybe not health related. You know, they've just got their own obstacles and challenges to get through. What advice would you give to somebody who maybe is in a little bit of a dark space and just can't seem to find that magical motivation to get out and move or to just find the brightness somewhere in a day? I'd say that, and we did touch on it earlier, the, the controlling the controllables, um, it's a big one. You know, 
some people really struggle without having control. Some people just accept it and they don't mind at all, but there are people that they need to have some level of control. And from a worldwide point of view, we've all had a huge amount of control taken away from us, from us this year, and we've had no choice in what has happened. But we have had a choice in how we deal with it, and that's the same moving forward. I think that that's why I say 2020 was the year to get used to the new normal. And I think this is the year that we were allowed to moan and allowed to give out. But I think we've done that now. 2021 is the year that we have to pull up our socks and figure out a way to get through it um, because we have no choice. You know, we either do or we deal with consequences. And as I think if you continue to say that to yourself, that I'm not giving myself a choice here. 2021, I will do this. I will do that regardless of what happens. But I don't mean I will climb Everest or I will, you know, change the world. I mean, like, I will get out and I'll do a 5K just in my area, regardless of whether it's raining. If I say on Tuesday I'm doing a 5K at 11 o'clock in the morning, I don't care if it's hailstone and just go. And even if you don't do the full 5K, get yourself dressed, put on your outdoor gear and go for 10 minutes. Usually, if you can persuade yourself to just do 10 minutes, you will go for longer because it's that first. It's actually opening the door is the hard part and getting off the couch. But even if you did just just do the 10 minutes, you've still done something that day that you didn't want to do. And that's where the mindset starts to change, because we've all done so many things this year that we didn't want to do. And, you know, outside of any type of exercise based stuff, like we've got worries this year that we didn't have last year. And those worries don't just go away overnight. I think it's our responsibility to find a way to, to just either park those worries up for a certain amount of time or compart. I always say this word wrong, compartmentalize. Um, is that the word? Basically split them up into categories, make them manageable. This is the time where, like, as I mentioned in the beginning, how being diagnosed initially was terrifying. I figured it out. Me and my family figured it out. Once we had the routine of chemotherapy and we knew what dates, it just became about right on that week. That's when we go for chemo. That's when this happens. And as much as, yes, I was going down to have chemotherapy, which is terrifying. I stopped thinking about it like that. And I just started thinking right that week I'm in Dublin. That's the week that I have this. That's the. I just started adding things to my diary. And it suddenly you take the fear away and you before you know it, you're doing things that you didn't realize you could do. So I think that if we sit down, if we give ourselves an hour between now and Christmas and sit down and set a few achievable goals for 2021 and just say, regardless of what happens, set these goals. And if you have to adapt them, that's all the better. It's thinking on your feet. It's a new skill. It's great. But don't just give up on 2021 thinking like, oh, sure, it's not going to be any different. It's up to you to change your mindset and make things happen. And find something that brings you joy in every day. I think that's very important as well. Jump in the sea. Jump in the sea. <laughs> well, it's a bit late to go jumping in the sea now this evening. But um, yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Nikki. It's been fascinating listening to you. You are a bundle of positivity and energy and resilience. And I can't wait to see what 2021 brings. And hopefully you might come down to Galway for an hour dip in Black Rock one of the days. Oh, definitely. I'll be there. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. I'd love to connect on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Pop by and say hi and let me know what you think of the show. If you are new to Try Talking Sport, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be impressed and inspired by our guests. Until next time, wash your hands, stay safe, keep smiling and thanks for tuning in.